Cool. Awesome. Yes. And we're off. We're doing this on a Friday. I don't know when you guys listen to your podcast, but we're doing this on a Friday. And today we have a special treat. Guess who's back? Hey, guys. I'm back. Andre's back. <laughs> we do. And Ian's here. You want to say hello, Ian? Hello. Okay. If Ian wasn't here, we wouldn't be able to do the podcast. We wouldn't be able to do it at all. I mean, <laughs> I'd probably be able to learn how to twist these knobs, but it would sound all like fucked up and mono and shitty. I mean, so thank God Ian's here. And he also has beautiful insight into uh, whatever we're putting out there. Today we're talking about adaptations, reboots, and remakes. Uh, this is a topic that... Didn't you come up with this one? I think you did, Andre. Um, we came up with it a, a while back. It's like been sit- sitting in our Google Doc. And I think it was just adaptations. Yeah, we And, start and then I suggested that we did reboots and remakes to sort of... Spice Open it up, up the topic a little bit. So we're yeah. not just talking about every book ever written by, you know, the guy who wrote the Pelican Brief. <laughs> who wrote the Pelican Brief? John Grisham. You're like, you're a John Grisham guy. I've read most of his stuff, and that's about all I've read. I like John that's Grisham. That's why I'm so dumb. You're not Because I don't read. Not at all. <laughs> I, read, I read gear manuals. Look, that's okay. It's fine if, it's fine if you don't read books. I think it's okay. I, I don't want to be a snob about it. You shouldn't read books. Um, I stopped reading them, apparently, so... You know, dumb with you if that's what's happening. I actually haven't read a full book in quite a while as well. I think the last book I like read in full was um, Love Simon, the book version. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I think because I know I wanted to, I wanted to read that before I went to see the movie. Yeah, you know, and I have to say, as I've started writing my own book, you know, one of the things that Stephen King says, he's probably one of the best per- people to get advice on writing a book. Uh, yeah. Because he just doesn't believe in all the other bullshit, and he he because he he had to write. He wrote to survive, and um, he he wrote. He says the most real world on the boots kind on the ground boots on the ground kind of stuff about writing. And one of the things he said is the only way to learn how to really write a book is to read other people's writing. If you want to learn how to make a movie, watch um, watch people's yeah. films, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been reading books of late, and and I've been trying to read like a book every week. And mm. I've read several recently, and I'm like, oh, shit, because I started with Camus. I'm not trying to be pretentious. I just had The Stranger, and I was <laughs> like, I don't remember this book being this way at all. Yeah, you, um, railed, through, you railed through quite a few yeah. re- just recently. And then I have about, like, 12 that you just from my own collection from over the years. And as time goes by, and I don't know, my memory has gotten porous from drinking and time, um, I'm like, oh, I'm rediscovering books. So, Yeah. But yeah. adaptations, has anyone ever done an adaptation um, of The Stranger? I'm sure they have, but I haven't seen it. So my list is going to be coming from stuff I've actually read to in the adaptation section. And then the reboots, mostly for me, is TV because I don't really go to the movies. And then remakes, just a general topic of from TV to film. Mm-hmm. What do we want to start with? We can start with adaptations. Okay, since let's it's do first that. on our list. Let's yeah. do it. Let's do it. And maybe by the end of the section, we'll make Andre's headache magically go away. Hopefully. <laughs> Y'all put your hands on Andre in your prayers right now. Send your vibes and make his headache go away. If you listen to this after the fact, it may work retroactively, although that's <laughs> not how that really works. Right. Not quite, but that's fine. So, um, I, yeah, I you took go. my four aspirin, so I'm good. Oh, so you I'm did? Good. You took? Did you take aspirin or Advil? <sighs> aspirin. Oh, wow. 
He's old school. <laughs> Shout out to Bayer. Please sponsor our podcast. <laughs> Word. Uh, so let, who wants to go first? Who wants to talk about, do you have your, do you have yours? I want to hear what yours are, Andre. Mine are going to be like old. Um, I mean, it's pretty much like the the obvious suspects, mostly that we've talked about on this podcast. It, could um, it be, could it rhyme with Mary Cotter? No, it's actually Perry Lauder. But oh, that's the distant cousin twice removed of Harry Potter. Could it also um, rhyme with <laughs> fantastical feasts? No, not quite. But I actually wanted to start with not that, but I was thinking of it recently. Um, the Hunger Games movies, mm. um, I think, is a really good example of an adaptation that has the core of the books in in the very films, but they also introduce their sort of own ideas and in in more ways than one it's a very safe adaptation because it sticks pretty closely with the storyline of the books Mm. the only diversions they take is you know like splitting up the last book into two parts but which is not it's it's a whole other thing i don't think they needed to do that i feel like most films don't need to do that um but i don't know i think when the first Hunger Games movie came out, it was almost like a direct translation and very little was left out. And then sort of the second film came along, new director, and he took it into some places that the author either didn't want to or didn't feel like it was, um, I don't know, I guess appropriate for her audience or whatnot. And then we get the very last installment and it's, it's it was, I think it's just really good. Now, barring the quality of the movies aside, because... I don't think they're amazing, but they're not bad either. Um, but it's more of to do of is the adaptation aspect um, something that we should be like grading in a movie that comes from a book? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, again, going back to the fundamentals, there's things that books can do that films can't and vice versa. Right. You have, you have time with a book. You can tell we can talk about what a character is feeling and a screenplay is a show don't tell. Right. Uh, It's all action. I think the improvement upon Suzanne Collins books um, that Gary Ross brought to the screen and um, and and two more credits, it says on IMDb. Who besides Gary Ross wrote on this motherfucking screenplay? All right. Hold on. I did not know this. I thought it was just Gary Ross. But anyway, two more other folkies. Who is that? Okay, Susan. Right. She worked on the screenplay as well. And Billy Ray, whomever you are, Billy. Shout out to Billy. So. What I noticed that the film did that the book did not is Suzanne is not awesome at writing action scenes in her novel. She's really good at creating a world. She was really good at creating Katniss and all the characters surrounding Katniss. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the action scenes were like they didn't happen. It was always after the fact. We were always like post-action. So Gary Gary Ross actually brought the action to the scenes. So I appreciated that. Yeah, I think another thing in terms of like what a movie can do and what a book can't do is that especially with Hunger Games, that is from Katniss's point of view, it's very limited in terms of um, the scope of what's going on. But for instance, like in the movie, we saw the um, the point of view of the Capitol while the Hunger Games was going on. So you saw within like the gamekeeping room and how they like are moving things around the arena and like doing this from like the outside force. I think that that sort of addition to an adapt adaptative material is it can only benefit it because it's really 
it expands the world building a bit, I think, and it makes everything a little bit more um, just expansive and, I guess, real. Because in the books, we didn't hear about the guy at the end being locked in the room and having to commit suicide, but the movie decided to show that right. as, a, as a sort of statement of the Capitol and all of that. Um, and funnily enough, like, I think it's because that the Hunger Games movies relatively stay close to the source material that people often don't complain about the liberties they do take. Mm. Um, And I think some people are very anal about how they want their adaptations. Like a lot of people are very much like, I want every line, every scene, even though it's not very practical and they kind of know it's not practical. It's sort of like wishful thinking. And I get like that a little bit sometimes. Um, But after a while, I feel like I'm, it's very easy for me to sort of separate those things because that's how I sort of feel about Harry Potter. I feel like the Harry Potter movies and the Harry Potter books are pretty different for me and I can appreciate both for what they are. Right. Like the, and the same, same way I feel about like fantastic beasts, whatever goes on in that franchise doesn't really have an effect on me with what happened in the books, what happened in those movies. It's just all very separate for me. They comes out of the fundamental of this. Time is money, right? Time is attention span. These are the two things I want to talk about in, in as far as adaptation. So if you, say, have a uh, a short book, Ray Bear, Bradbury's Fahrenheit uh, 451, I'm not talking about the um, really gross and disappointing uh, update that they did on HBO. What the fuck, guys? Uh, I'm talking about mm-hmm. the one back in the day, I want to say 70s, 80s, that they did uh, where they took a short book that took something very small and they made it uh, fucking amazing, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a long book, if you go past 300 pages, let's just say, you're starting to ask for it. So here's what's got to happen. Either you need to mitigate your expectations as a book reader and understand that 124 minutes is usually what the average film is shooting for. It's, it's, it, someone has determined that this is the modern-day world's attention span still. I think it's an old mode. So you either have to buy that old modem or you have to do what they did with a couple of films like Lawrence of Arabia. And I'm proposing something more controversial. And I think millennials and Generation Z are up for it. I am the three-hour movie. So your film, Harry Potter, is this long, beautiful book. So the first one is called, oh, my God, what's the first Harry Potter book called? Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone. And he knows exactly. I have my guy in the room. So... That film, let's just say, three hours and 20 minutes. I don't want to watch a three-hour and 20-minute film. You're probably a baby boomer. Don't show up to this movie. Nobody cares. <laughs> Go watch it on TV. Whatever, when it comes out in pieces with fucking credits and commercials and shit. But I feel like the Generation Z and the millennials who get accused all the time of having a short attention span will totes show up and sit in that theater for three hours and 20 minutes with two intermissions. Do you old motherfuckers remember when we had an intermission in a movie? Let me just refresh y'all memory. When Gone with the Wind came out, that motherfucker was long, too. And y'all went to the Fox Theater in Atlanta on the premiere, and you were completely fine going outside and chain-smoking and being racist and having a mint julep and then going back in and watching your beloved classic be adapted from Margaret Mitchell's book to the screen. I am going to be proposing this to Hollywood right now on this podcast, and I'm sure it's been said in other rooms. Three-hour movie. Four-hour movie. Okay? You can charge maybe a little bit more. 
I'd pay maybe $22 for that, maybe $25 for that. You're getting more money, okay? Mm -hmm. But I'm going in for a three-hour experience. I'm getting to come out for my 20-minute break, talking about what happened at first section. And then you're getting to tweet about it, Instagram about it. It's getting people now can come down for the second half. Do you see where I'm heading with this? I feel like it's bound to happen. It has I feel to. Like it, I feel like it is going to happen. I feel like there's going to be a resurgence of that. Because, I mean, if you think about it, that's that's what people are doing when they go to see musicals. A Absolutely. lot of musicals are, are they're not three hours long. Like, the longest I can think of is Les Mis, which is like two hours and 35 minutes. Mm. And people still go to that. And I would totally go and see a four-hour Marvel film and have an intermission in between. Wouldn't you, I feel though? like... Mm -hmm. I I feel like it, yeah. They they could that business sense that it, it just makes perfect sense. But now you're you're sort of now we're into sort of how is this going to work logistically in terms of the production? Because of like Infinity War, the rough cut was like four to five hours, and they cut it down to two hours, two right. hours so, and a half but, hours. But here, but you just answered my question. They already shoot it that way. Now, yeah. maybe you bump the actors up because the price point's going up. All that stuff. Yeah. I understand it's going to cost you more money to make your film, allegedly. I mean, we know you're already going to have a four-hour film that you have to pare down to a, an hour and a half, two hours. I know you already have, but see, the fans will watch your four-hour film. Editor doesn't have to do anything but trim a little bit of fat. Pay your actors more. Pay your crew more. Always pay your crew more, by the way. And we will show up and pay 25 I paid $30 for a fucking four-hour, like, Marvel movie. Hell yeah. yes. Okay? Yeah. yeah. You know, you don't have to have extras or featurettes. I mean, you can still have that, too. But let's just say now Hunger Games doesn't suffer from having to shove a book into an hour 29, hour 30, whatever premise. Mm -hmm. Right? This is our problem because we see how TV has become king. How did TV become king? Because people will sit down and binge watch a show for 12 hours straight. And then you yeah. accuse people of not having the attention span. Yeah. I know you're in your house, you're in your pajamas, you're laying in bed, you got corn chips in your hair. I'm not saying this ever happened to me. And, you know, people are like, I don't want to sit that long in a theater. I, I think that people would, though. I think so too. I think the reason TV is, is become, is more popular than ever is because people want that extended story and from a storytelling standpoint it's like you've hit the gold mine because now instead of having to worry about a character development that you have to fit into two hours now you have like 12 hours and some change mm -hmm. to flesh out whatever you want exactly and i feel like like this and this is precisely why lord of the rings is getting its own amazon series because like the peter jackson films were like three hours and they still didn't get everything in the books that's why i have you know? no sympathy for movie studios getting like nobody goes to the movie theater anymore look y'all did not adapt and it's adapt or die right so yeah we'll sit down and like again you're watching in your pajamas i pee a lot i do pee a lot so i can't pause that movie for everybody else but I have to say that if you did, if somebody would just try it, just do it one time. Go out and just try an audience and say, next Marvel film that comes up, you know, let's do a three hour. Let's do the four hour. We can offer you the pair down. If you want to be out of there an hour, you got babysitter, you got traffic, you got stuff, you got a lot to live. I get it. Some people just like, bitch, I do not want to sit in a movie theater for four hours. That's awesome. Y'all go do your thing. Nobody's pissing on y'all. But then we have the four hour version that's showing tonight at like, I don't know. 10, 11 o'clock, 
mm-hmm. millennials are like probably just getting out of work because they're just work half the fucking death. They'll go in there and sit there after the end of their shift and they'll watch that thing and they'll pay that extra money. Just try it. Just try it with one film, one time in one city and see what the turnout is. I think even even offering more options would be great. Like you have like the regular cut and then you can have a showing with an extended cut of exactly. the film. Exactly. Instead just, of releasing it on, on Blu-ray, you know. I, you know and then, or delay that by like, you know, whatever it is, whatever. Um, but I'm just saying... I feel like you would bring eyeballs to the screens, which is the big lament of the industry. Mm-hmm. But also, I just feel like now everybody involved in the creative part of this gets their due. Yeah. You know, you don't have, how in the fuck are you going to take, you know, something as massive as Game of Thrones and shove it into a movie? Now, I got to tell you, George R.R. R. Martin, who wrote Game of Thrones, first book in what, 1991, he said, there's no fucking way you can turn this into a movie. So anyone who came to his door in New Mexico and said, we want to adapt Game of Thrones into a movie, he goes, how the fuck are you going to do that? Do you understand how physics works? Do you understand how math works? So he didn't say yes until long about, what, that was eight years ago. He said yes to the specific two guys who got it, Benahoff and Wise, who came to him, who answered the one magical question. No one else answered is, who is Jon Snow's mother? Um, and it turned into what it is, and that's probably one of the best adaptations because he recognized that it needed to be a fucking series, and it needed to be Tits and Dragons, so it needed to be on HBO. And then that's probably one of the best adaptations that I've seen so far because it split in two. It didn't mind not being the books. It went off and did its own thing, and it had the Mm -hmm. blessing of its creator, yeah. So I, in my book, it's the gold standard of of adaptations. So. Yeah, I I particularly love when again, like when adaptations manage to to bring in their own ideas, and sometimes that it doesn't work out. Now, but going back to the oh, and I'll get that to the second, but back to the the Hunger Games thing, I feel like the Hunger Games books are just the perfect amount, the perfect length for a movie sure and i think most of them are like two hours two hour and a half yeah they actually i think they're but fine yeah i don't need I think, any more of uh pita like laying around being helpless i i don't think that the last book needed to be split into two parts but yeah. a lot but you know it was the thing to do at the time you know they sure. were following the harry potter model and the harry potter or harry potter model of splitting the the last book into two films at to me, that is the only example where that has actually worked and where it has been needed. Yeah. Because there is no way that they could have fit that entire book into one film. Yeah. And for the longest time, Warner Brothers was really worried about the fourth book because it's literally 800 some pages long. They were thinking, oh my God, do we need to do this? Do we need to split it into films? And I think David Heyman was like, no, we can do it in. We can do it in one film. And that's probably why a lot of people don't like the fourth film is because so much got left out in order for it to meet that time limit. So I was going to be controversial. I, I want to, you guys were uh, not paying attention or not alive. Uh, when they adapted Stephen King's The Stand and they did it on television with commercials before Netflix and you were to tune in for this eight night or whatever it was event on ABC, NBC, CBS, I don't know. Um, and it was, I have to say, kind of blew us all away because they did it. It was pre-binge world, right? 
So mm-hmm. the stand is like an 800, almost 900 page book. There's no way. It's like super flu wipes out the entire earth. And it starts with patient zero in a Kansas City, you know, lockdown medical facility that replicates the CDC and it spreads throughout the world. And then all of these people end up like broken into two groups of heaven and hell. Pre Walking Dead, uh, pre any of that stuff. This was Stephen King, like, talking about how the flu was going to wipe us out. And he's probably still right. So, terrifying set of books because it's the, the devil that, that's coming to get you is viral. And there's these amazing scenes, like, in the tunnel in New York trying to get out of, like, the Holland Tunnel and shit like that. And, like, they looked at this and they said, there's no way you can put the stand uh, into, you know, an hour and a half, hour 45, two hours even. Not mm-hmm. even a three-hour movie. So they made it as a, an event. And I remember that being like, I thought, this is going to be a, a standard, right? And we used to call them movies of the week. Um, yeah. And then they, they did a few of these, and they were quite successful, like Lonesome Dove and shit like that. But like the stand was like the beginning of that, ooh, what if they did this all the time? And I guess it, it just took a while for Netflix to come along and go, let's do this kind of thing. But yeah, I feel like that's kind of... It depends on the film. It depends on the the content, obviously. And now yeah, I talked myself I, into a ditch. Keep going. I, <laughs> no, I agree. And I think um, going back to the idea of, of films bringing in their own ideas, I mean, that's that's all over Harry Potter. And it's, again, another reason why people don't like the films because uh, for some people it's very hard to separate the books and the films Sure, and, I and when that. and when everything I, I completely understand that too but when not everything fits into a complete puzzle when they don't use the right spell in that moment or do or something else it just takes them out of the experience completely right and i've learned to accept that that the movies are completely different and i watch them for their own purpose and i read the books for their own purpose and i understand the relationship between them but i don't hold the movies as gunpoint because they don't follow every single rule i mean and and again it's also a lot of just visual aesthetic a lot of the stuff in the harry potter movies don't make sense within the world building of the books but they look great and that's Mm. really all that matters um but i still feel like those movies are like the best case scenario and it it was a big advantage that those films came out of the, the british film industry and not the hollywood one um, I agree with I that. But I think, but getting away from that, I think a great example of where an adaptation starts great and then they start introducing their own ideas and it doesn't quite work is the Maze Runner series with Dylan O'Brien. Yeah, did um, you read the Maze Runner series? I read all three books. Oh, okay. Um, and it's weird watching the progression of those films because they slowly and then very quickly get away from the books completely because the first movie is very much like, Yes, that's the first book. It follows pretty much the same thing. Very true to the book, event by event. Pretty solid. Then the second film was very much like, okay, we have that first film. Now we're going to do go and do our own thing, kind of. And then the third film was like not even the same thing. Mm. Um, and it's kind of it, it's kind of weird. I know I've just spoke about like separating that thing. separating like the movies and the books but now it's hard for me because it started off very faithful and then it slowly got more and more generic and not attached to the books at all and it takes me out of of them a lot like i I just watched the the third film when it came when it came out on 
on digital and it was all right it was generic but it it just wasn't the what happened in the in the third book and which is again which is fine but it's a far cry from an adaptation i think i mean i don't blame either take i don't blame either take of it's not the book so fuck this hollywood takes a lot of liberties yeah Uh, there was a time when it didn't there was a time when the word was more faithfully kept to than maybe it is in modern times where people think Mm -hmm. words are cheap like back in the day the writer like we'll get to it soon enough the star is born remix of which there have been four uh or three at least where you know moss hart's words are still being used in the modern adaptation you know because they were so well done you know he unlocked something you know i'd defy anybody to go off into the future and remake um all of the uh oh my god i just lost it out of my mind uh, Marty and uh, Doc and Back uh, to the Future. Yeah, I, I defy somebody to go off when they start to remake Back to the Future, and that generation is still alive. There'll be blood in the streets. It's like, oh yeah, there's just faithful words on 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 paper that you don't fuck with. And there was a time when people respected the novel and respected how it was done. And then there was this whole run up in the nineties and two thousands. So there's a cash grab of like, well, fuck that. We're just gonna make whatever. Um, and nobody really could do anything about it, but I feel like the, the, this current audience is like, really though, do you have to do it this way? I mean, you can put it on Netflix, you can put it on Amazon, you can put it on Hulu. Do you really have to go and like ruin our beloved thing? I'm excited for the times that are changing, but I just, I just know that there was a time when you, you basically respected the the written word to a certain degree and then there was like go fuck yourself we're just gonna take your thing and make what we want to out of it yeah and i mean like thinking about that a lot of it also might have to do with just how much the author is involved that's true uh and writers can be a pain in the ass so um, because yeah. the, the writer has that sticky little problem of going that doesn't work and you're not in charge and we're not all jerking off the director and um, this is what it needs to be. It totally depends on the personalities. Like Stephen King has actually been pretty cool about getting out of the way um, and his yeah, stuff but has he's, been adapted. He's, he, he's famously known for not liking any of his, well, <laughs> his because, adaptations though, until it that just came out. Exactly yeah. because of what I just said. Like he gets out of the way and he lets people do their thing and he's like, well, that sucked. I think probably one of the things that he agreed with actually loving was the body. Um, a short story written as Richard Bachman was turned into a film by Rob Reiner in 1986 mm-hmm. and it's it's a beautiful loving adaptation that that totally hits the right notes i want to say also shawshank redemption um ended up being a beautiful adaptation in the green mile as well and mm-hmm. probably i would say yeah it as well and i want to say there's another one that he did um where he was a part of it and of course he's executive producer on castle rock which is not based on a work but has his approval. Now, notoriously, Stephen King has hated The Shining's adaptation by Kubrick, but I think he softened over the years to be like, I know, I hated it. And I think he's kind of boiled it down to he just hates how the Wendy character got treated on screen because he's learned to be a man who's who's changed with the times. And uh-huh. he doesn't like the misogynistic treatment of Wendy. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it just... 
then there's just authors that I find that it's amazing if you can adapt them at all. Like, I don't know if you've ever read a Cormac McCarthy book, but if you've ever read any of them, I'm like, when I would hear like somebody is, is going to like adapt it in its truest form, Cormac McCarthy, I've seen kind of like the romance novel handling of it. But when the Coen brothers came along and did no country for old men, I was like, damn, that's some balls, yo. And if anybody had like the, the testicular fortitude to do it, it was the Coen brothers (laughs) and no country for old men takes something that's almost unadaptable and takes it to the screen in a way that I think is formidable. Mm -hmm. Of course, I don't know if the author ever weighed in on it. I'm not even sure if he's alive. I'm sorry, sir, if you are alive, but that was one of those where I was like, holy shit. Same thing with true grit. Uh, they remade a film, a beloved John Wayne film um, from, what, 1969 by Henry Hathaway and turned it into this fucking masterpiece. Um, the original book was uh, written by Charles Portis. So I was like, holy shit, it can be done, and it totally depends on who's involved. I mean, again, the most recent example of an author being involved who did justice to their book is uh, Kevin Kwan, who did Crazy uh, Rich Asians. He mm. literally sold his book rights for a dollar so he could be an executive producer sitting on top of his work. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. and, and, and also Diana Gabaldon, who did that with Outlander. Um, so those are three examples of, of the modern times where people are like, no, I need to be involved, you know, in some form or fashion. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about um, Gaiman? With American Gods. Yeah, Neil Gaiman. And so, and we can talk about what happened with that. Like the first season of American Gods, beautiful, gorgeous, dreamlike. Also putting in the, you know, a representation for the LGBTQ. Also in that culture, in the Middle Eastern culture, very controversial. Wasn't in the original books. Uh, We all loved the shit out of it. It was like, oh my God, you know, what did Brian Fuller do with the series? It's so great. And then... And Michael Green. And then um, Gaiman fucking hates it. Shit cans fuller. And now it's in trouble. And now we're not going to see the light of day of season two. That's when, <laughs> like, now you're all... And I, I worship uh, Gaiman to a certain degree. I don't worship anybody or anything. But, like, I really respect this man's work. And I'm like, I think you're getting in your own way, dude. I think you're... You should have let Fuller continue on with American Gods and be what it was going to be. Well, we're going to see what's going to happen with Good Omens. Yeah, and you know he's not getting in the way there, but it's probably because he wants it to be faithful to his books. I just think, okay, I, I don't have this privilege yet. I'm writing a book right now, and I'm thinking, what would I think if somebody came along and took my character of Bald and did something with him that I didn't appreciate? I'm sure it would rankle me, but I'd like to believe that I would listen to fans and to myself and say, like Max Brooks did with World War Z, go off and do that thing that doesn't look anything like my book, and I will go and cash this check and go to Norway on vacation. I will go and get a private jet and pick up my friend Andre, and we will all go and like party on the beach somewhere. Oh, we all hate the beach. <laughs> we'll go party in the mountains somewhere <laughs> in heavy coats because we like winter more. There's layers involved. And we will, like, that'll be fine. I don't give a fuck what you're doing. You're using my character's name, but I would like to believe that I'm that person that can step away from it. Or if people wrote fan fiction about my book and changed what my character's motivations are, even if they were creepy and I didn't agree with them, I'd like to believe that I was the good creator who said, you guys do what you want. 
You know, I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm not gonna, I'm not sure, Overlord. I want to yeah, be I mean, that creator, right? I mean, I guess, I guess it just depends on what kind of adaptation mm. are we doing? Are we doing a retelling or are we doing something that's based upon? Right. Like, cause I feel like the it movie is just based on the book because there's a bunch of stuff in the book that was left out and not to be, not because it was super long, but it took that singular idea and spanned it out into this whole story. Um, I don't, I, I don't know personally, like, if I wrote a book and someone approached me and wanted to make a movie, I don't know if I could step aside and be like, yeah, do whatever, you know? I think I'd have to be very much like, or, well, yeah. or I don't know, because that could really hinder the, the, the process. So you it's, know what? it's really tricky. I would base it on exactly who is going to be doing the adaptation. I'd have to see. That's also I'd probably, true. I'd probably do what George R. R. Martin did and just meet with the people and like look them in the eyes and say, hey, can I be attached in some way just to see what's going on? If I saw some sort of asshole come in and like, oh, I'm going to go in there and blah, 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 I'm like, hell no. So I'm not saying I would just throw my baby up with a bathwater and go, raise him as you will. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I would like I would like more like to use an American Horror Story apocalypse um analogy i would like kathy bates to raise my antichrist i don't think i just want just anyone raising my antichrist i would just want you know i'd want the right godmother to be raising my uh my evil uh, child well here's the question for you would you be involved in the casting process would you want to be involved in something like that it's so i would love to have this problem that's what i'm gonna say about that (laughs) i would love to have this problem because I mean, how much do you want to be involved in this kind of situation? I think I'd have to be this old, grizzled veteran of adaptations to... Like I said, I've seen it so many different ways. I've seen the creator be involved like George Martin and be like, go with God, kill everybody you want to in the television series. Half of these characters are still alive in the book. Come read my next book that I'm still getting around to writing because I'm getting fucked with and asking questions all the time about how you finish your goddamn TV series and then I'll finish the fucking books. (laughs) Everybody get off of me. Go eat a dick. (laughs) Or like Gaiman, who surprised me by getting in the middle of something that was beautiful and going, well, that's not what I necessarily did, but that's gorgeous what you did with these characters. It so depends. I don't think there's one it's answer. It's a gamble. It totally yeah. is. I mean, I would have to know who who I'm in the room with. And I think at this juncture in my life, I'd be able to sit in the room and go, you're a dick. No, thanks. And I would just say no to the rights altogether. Like Kevin yeah. Kwan got to choose who adapted his book. I think that's the smartest thing where you don't sell it for money. If you spent mm-hmm. this kind of love on your characters, by the way, my book is not about the Antichrist. Um, I was just using an example because I just saw it the other day and I love that episode. But uh, I would have to say I would probably offer my book up for like $5 as well and be like, so I can have a say-so to a certain degree. I have no idea. I would love to have this problem. I have not answered your question. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like maybe I'd I'd want to be involved in only the things... I know about which would mm. be the story and the characters and then everything else can literally be whatever you know what I mean well I look at an example of a book that kind of it spilled beyond its own borders but still lived there and that's Fight Club I just recently reread Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club and it's a book that like changed culture it changed minds and and again a, a bunch of bad evil shitty men still point to the Matrix and the Fight Club to shore up their bad shitty points about stuff 
<laughs> and Palinyuk will be like, well, I feel like it's terrible that a lot of guys don't have more choices, which I think is also a cop-out. But the fact that his book has gone so beyond his reach, but then just rim, just ricocheted right back into his arms is kind of a weird cultural kind of phenomenon. You uh-huh. know? I feel like also the writer of that, the screenwriter Jim Oles, actually used a lot of just the content from the book, and, and, and they adapted it faithfully and beyond even maybe Chuck's expectations. And it just kind of did this kind of crazy thing for that place in time that continues also to inform a lot of bad behavior. But I love this quote from Chuck about that. You know, he said, you know, I am a kind of a nihilist, but I'm not a depressive nihilist. (laughs) Uh, I'm a nihilist who says that if nothing inherently means anything, we have the choice to do whatever it is we dream of doing. Um. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's somebody who can come along and do a post-Fight Club adaptation of that book as a TV series or a work on its own to sort of build upon that quote by Chuck. You know? Yeah. A reboot, if you will. I feel like also it might have to do with what kind of... One, what kind of fan base are you talking about when it Mm. comes to the book that you're adapting? And what is the conversation around that book? Because for me... I didn't read the Hunger Games movie, uh, books until I heard that the Hunger Games movie was coming out. Oh, and that's so when I heard people talking about it. And that's when I started reading it. So in a way, and I feel like those books became popular because of the movies. Because now you're reading a lot, you're reaching a lot more people now. It's it's become so much more accessible. I agree with that. And and I feel like if you, I feel like people who haven't read the books went to see the movie, I'm pretty sure they're going to be like, I probably am going to read this like 300 page, 400 page book and see where all of this came from. Right. You know, so. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Like I will sometimes reread something right before it comes out. And then there's like situations like with Star Trek. Star Trek's been around since the Dizzle. It wasn't a book, by the way. We're talking about remakes. And I've seen that franchise go through so many incarnations. And, you know, where it's landed has been one of my favorite things is because I think the Star Trek of today, the Star Trek Discovery, uh-huh. and, and its previous incarnations with the Picard days and stuff like that. Well, all of them, actually. I've had, hate, I didn't even hate the J.J. Abrams adaptation. I've kind of enjoyed them all because I think that Star Trek Discovery was actually created to go to a place that no man has gone before or woman. And that's a universe of diversity and inclusion and we're finally at that place where everybody's losing their shit over like two gay or bisexual characters being into each other and i'm like y'all need to did y'all watch the show (laughs) did y'all fucking watch the show when it was on tv back in the motherfucking set all right whatever fun fact did you did you ever watch the the old um star trek tv shows like ds9 and next generation fuck yeah yeah um, I n- know the guy who wrote the music for those shows. Oh yeah, yeah. And? He's actually he's actually coming to uh, give us a master class next week at our school. Holler! And I've met with him and talked with him. He's pretty cool. And so, what does he say about this whole thing about where Star Trek has gone? Um, I don't think I don't think in relation to like the the J.J. Abrams movies. Sure, any of it. I don't think we we really talked about that. The only thing I remember him saying was that. When he came onto the project, uh, he had like um, 
it was around it was a little after Star Wars when that all 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 of that was blowing up and he said I remember that I wrote a, a, one theme for every character and I had all these motifs and whatnot and all the and all the director could say was this isn't Star Wars this is oh. just Star Trek so get rid of all those themes we only need one and just go do your thing um but yeah, but yeah that was a cool story um now here's now here's a question for me are the are all of those Andre, shows here's and here's a question movies... for you, Andre. This is a question what? for you. I'm just saying. And direct the question back to you. Here's a question for you, Andre. Oh, okay. Okay. No, 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 no. You're about to ask your own question. Oh. <laughs> I was giving it an awkward, weird intro now that I've said it this way. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was just going to ask you, um, all these like shows and movies that come from Star Trek, are they reboots or are they remakes? I mean, that's a very good question. If you ask very angry, rabid fans who tore up their tickets and rendered their, you know, Shatner albums into, I don't know. I mean, I've never been mad at any of them. I've always been excited that we're still talking about Star Trek. After I went to my first, I didn't even know conventions were a thing. I went to my very first convention of Star Trek back at the Von Braun Civic Center in Huntsville, Alabama, and probably, like, I don't know, 81, 80. They weren't even a thing, dude. And Gene Roddenberry was actually fucking there. And Ohura, and uh, I think everybody but Shatner. We were all waiting Mm -hmm. for Shatner. But it was, like, it was such a lovely day and so exciting for me that it made me a sci-fi fan forever. I was a comic book nerd, and then I became like this total dyed-in-the-wool nerd. I'm just excited to just that it's still alive, yo. Like, mm-hmm. that it's still here and, and, and that people are still arguing about it. I don't know if I can even answer that question after so much time. I guess some of them are reboots, some of them are remakes, some of them are pulled from their whole cloth. But mm-hmm. I feel like Gene Roddenberry would be pretty fucking stoked to see that we're still having this conversation. And I think he would have been just, I think he would have loved uh, where all of these characters went. I mean, come on. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Too bad um, that Shatner's turned out to be the guy he's become at times. I mean, I love me some Shatty, but I also kind of have times where I'm like, Dude. It's like when you're, it's like the older, like some people get and they get like a little bit, you know, inappropriate. I feel like that's what's happening with Mashatner. So, mm. you know, that's true. Sometimes I'm um, like, shut up, dude. The way I sort of parse it out is I think of um, the, all the, the different Spider-Man iterations we've been getting. Yes. Um, so, so we have like Sam Raimi, Spider-Man, mm-hmm. Mark Webb, Amazing Spider-Man and Marvel Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man to me is a remake of Sam Raimi and Marvel Spider-Man is a reboot of the comic Ooh. Spider-Man. Okay. That's how I sort of separate it because the, the Amazing Spider-Man was very much sort of the same as the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Like, Uncle Ben died. Oh, here's how he got his powers. The spider bite. All of that stuff. The classic, Marvel, tragic, the classic tragic origin story. The, the origin story. Yeah, basically. And then Marvel is has completely taken the, the reboot track and decided to do something completely different with the character. Um, and you could also think about, like, all of the, like... Sherlock Holmes TV shows and movies that came out like you have like the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock you have Benedict Cumberbatch uh, BBC Sherlock and you have Johnny Lee Miller Elementary Um, those are all sort of 
they and they sort of have it both reboot and remake in a way. They do. They actually. I feel do. like I feel like Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes is more on the side of remake because it's it's more closer to the books, same time period, same sort of story. Um, but I think definitely like BBC Sherlock and Elementary are very much like reboots of the character. I feel like people have the criticism, and, and this is the thing that always annoys me. It really does annoy me when people say, why do we have to remake everything? Well, first of all, I don't know if you're a writer, and I don't know if you're a task with having to sit in a room and come up with new content. I, I agree that it feels like Hollywood doesn't have any fresh ideas. But uh, apparently you don't go to a lot of art houses like I have and like you, I used to. Uh, a lot of that fresh new content, you, y'all don't watch. You don't watch it. It's on Netflix. Y'all don't watch it. Yeah. It's on Amazon. Y'all don't watch it. It's at the art house. Y'all don't watch it. It's on now. It's on Facebook. It's on YouTube. Y'all don't watch it. So Hollywood wants to put asses in the seat. They also want to keep franchises alive. Right. And there's beloved content out there. So I feel like we live in a world where we can have all of it. So don't like that annoying thing of why we got to remake it. Don't watch it. I have, I have, well, I have two things. The, the question, like, when something comes out and people start asking, do we need this? Every time I'm like, think about your favorite movie and ask, did we need this movie to be made? Because in all actuality, we don't really need any of this to come out, or but we're is, doing it. it. Yeah. We're exactly. doing it. Read a book. And I, I used to be of the, the opinion that, especially like, uh, maybe not lately, but definitely in like the early 2010s, there was just a lot of like reboot remake fatigue. Yeah, there was, and it very, it very much felt like that's fair. Hollywood was running out of ideas to a certain extent, but I feel like now it's just at a point where it's so much harder to market a new idea versus an, an idea people are comfortable with. Well, I think that's what was happening in 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 this changing of the guard, right? Yeah. As the millennials were coming into their own, as they had a say at the box office, and they do they do now more than ever. Generation Z has a huge. Again, look how I'm working this in. Bohemian Rhapsody is on tour right now, <laughs> and they are doing something that I think is very cool. They're showing their all of the audiences they're screening these movies for in the six day domestic tour is for college students. They know that the old ass fucking queen fan like me is going to go see this movie. Uh, love it, hate it, whatever. They're marketing to Generation Z directly. They know hmm. where their bread is buttered. They're not just making this to old faithful queen fans because we're just going to show up for it, okay? They're throwing the red meat out to the young kids and saying, here's this thing. A lot of y'all didn't, weren't even born when Wayne's World came out. You don't even give a shit. This is like, here, y'all. And I just see a lot of this marketing going out to, like, fresh, young blood. And I'm very excited. And 70-year-old Brian May, the guitarist for Queen, is here for it. I'm here for it. Let's mm-hmm. introduce, introduce an entire generation to Freddie Mercury, our bisexual hero that y'all should be loving on. This dude was out in the street saying, it doesn't matter who I fuck. It doesn't matter who I'm with. And his own homophobic fans turned on him. And that's why he couldn't come out as gay in the media. That's why he couldn't come out as bisexual in the media. That's why their their record sales fell off. Now they did some missteps. But I'm just saying I love how this is getting like handled right now. I love how we have this time on the earth to turn around and give Freddie his due posthumously and mm-hmm. say, "Okay, you want a bisexual hero? 
He created some of the best anthems in the fucking world, and here they are, y'all. So I'm heartened by things like that. And like Twin Peaks, The Return. Lynch came back in 2018 and made good on what he did in the 90s. And I loved what he did. It was amazing, guys. And the people who didn't get it and and hated it, uh, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. But I love that we can... We're in a time where all things are possible. So mm-hmm. let's do all of it. Let's do there's so much coin out there to be made. Yeah. You know, the boomers can bitch and whatever. And then there's also a lot of awesome boomers who were like just waiting for this shit. Who have been like, Oh my god, we're in this amazing time. And Gen mm-hmm. Xers who were like home like I'm one of those people who's like, Are you shitting me? Yeah. That's why I'm like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be one of those motherfucking Star Wars fans who's like this is not my fucking Han Solo. There's an Asian lady in my movie having words and opinions and so what? Fuck off, dude. This is awesome, y'all. Try all of it. I don't yeah. give a fuck if there's 27 prequels to Star Wars. I'm just happy that that Lucas doesn't get to tell me all of the storylines. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, uh, I think whether your your personal opinions about reboots and remakes aside, I feel like Hollywood has gotten smarter about how they're producing these things because now it's not so much like they're doing remakes like like when the 2016 yeah 2016 Ghostbusters came out right it's very much like stuff like Venom. Where you right. have a familiar comic book character in a completely different story. And now you're inhabiting the best of both worlds. Now with Star Wars having the reboot of the new trilogy, um, you'll notice that a lot of the trailers for The Force Awakens was heavily featured referential material and a lot of touchstones of like Star Wars memorabilia and lore. Like a lot of it is a lot of stuff... From the original trilogy, like, oh, there's Han Solo, there's R2-D2, there's the Millennium Falcon, there's C-3PO, and they got the butts in the seats. I feel like people would have gone to see it no matter how they marketed the trailer, but they did that with the intention of, we got to make sure people are coming to see this film. Mm. Well, that's always going to be, always, no matter what film you're making, that's always going to be the bottom line. I'm sorry. Unless you're talking about some art house film and, like, there's, like, some Danish chick you've never heard of and some German you know, female director who's like in her 60s, no one's going to go see that film, you know, except for like a handful of us who are like still go to see art films and shit. You know, it's like it is called show business. It's not called show fun, show fanfic. It's not called show you. Yeah. It's it's about butts in the seats because money makes the world go round, right? But I don't see it through that cynical filter. I really don't. I I tend not to see things that way. Do I love it? I don't watch any previews of something. If there's buzz about it, I'll just get high off of that and go see it. And as much as I have my feelings about certain people, I will go see A Star is Born. And here's why. Speaking about uh, controversial things between Venom and A Star is Born that I won't speak to. So the film was a, has been remade. And I'm talking about a faithful, this is what I would call a textbook remake, right? 1937. Mm-hmm. Um, screenwriter is um, Moss Hart, directed by William Wellman, uncredited Jack Conway, starring Janet Gaynor as Esther Blodgett, who became Vicki Lester, her first screen name, and then Frederick March as Norman Maine. Okay, whatever. It's actually 
it's actually, if you go watch 1937 and you go watch 2018, pretty much faithful to Moss Hart's story. He was the guy who came out with the original premise. Premise is, guy who's like super famous, meets unsung starlet. He gives her a break. She becomes more famous than him. He offs himself. Sorry to spoil the star is born for you, but they've been making it again and again and again. (laughs) 1954, uh, I'm sorry, 1954 screenwriter is Moss Hart. Forgive me. Um, who was, Boo, can you look up the, the screenwriter for the 1937 A Star is Born? I think it was like five guys. Anyway, so 1954 is Moss Hart, directed by George Cooker, starring J- Judy Garland and uh, James Mason as the two characters. 1976, this is the one that got me, maybe want to go watch the other two, is uh, screenwriters, by the way, Jeg- uh, John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion and Frank Pearson. Director Frank Pearson. So this is starting Babs, Barbara Streisand, as Esther Hoffman. Now we've made her Jewish. Woo! It's the 70s. Chris Christopherson, John Norman Howard. I fell in love with the two of these so hard. The, the soundtrack kills me. It's Barbara Streisand at her heyday. She's just singing all this amazing shit. I have loved her since the day. But now I'm, like, feeling my Barbara. I went out and got a perm to look like her, and I wanted her nose so bad, and I wanted to be Jewish so bad, and I had the hots for Chris Christopherson because just look at his abs. Just look at that guy. I wanted to be with both of them. That's when I realized I was a bisexual, and I wanted to be Jewish. Okay, so that was 1976. <laughs> that was even pre-Woody Allen, okay, or long about the time. So then in 2018, you got the screenwriters are Eric Roth, Bradley Cooper, Will Fetters, and then I notice in the credits for the writers is Hart, Dunn, Didion, Pearson, Wilman, and Carson. They pulled the material from all of the films. Mm. So what you're going to go see in 2018 is a modern version-ish, but guys, it's still the same story from 1937. Who were the writers in 1937? Uh, Written by William Wilman, Robert Carson, Dorothy Parker, and Alan Campbell. Dorothy Parker. Dorothy fucking Parker from the round table, the Algonquin round table. So that was the people who created that story. William Wellman, the director, and all those guys. So that was your original story of, we see this all the time in town. Here's this old geezer who's super famous. Here's this young starlet. And then she gets super famous. He can't handle it. Male ego, whatever. And then next thing you know, he walks into the surf. Jumps off a building, walks in front of a car, whatever he does in this movie, I don't know. Just want you to know that it doesn't end well for the... um, the uh, Bradley Cooper character. Um, spoiler alert, guys. And it's a tragic love story, blah, 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 and she rises and la, la, la. So you see how this is a true remake. And it's funny how I see some, like, total... Because here's the thing. You can call it lazy. Hollywood doesn't have ideas. Look, the premise of A Star is Born gets me every time. It's like when I sit down and watch a rom-com, I know that the, at the end of the rom-com... It's not a German film. It's not, a, it's not like an Italian film like during the resistance in World War II. Everybody lives, and only a couple of times when they're trying to be artsy does the girl not get the guy. You know? Mm-hmm. The modern spin is, well, they're not we're made for each other, blah, blah, blah. They're sort of playing with that kind of theme. But ultimately, at the end of this film, you know what's going to happen. And look, I'm a sucker for it every single fucking time. If I want to watch me a rom-com, which I rarely do, I'm like, I'm signing up for the holiday. I know what's happening. And I need Jed Law 
Jude Law and this bitch to like hook up. I just need this to happen because it's the holidays and I'm binge drinking and I need this moment. I think that's what remakes are for when we expect and get what we expect, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like if you go into a remake thinking that they're going to switch up and there's going to be some sort of fucking 1977 art school ending where everybody dies or, or changes, you know, the world, you're signing up for a world of hurt. So yeah. I think some of this onus needs to be on the viewer is my long walk to the point of if you're walking into a theater, you need to mitigate your expectations almost every single fucking time. Mm -hmm. You know? Did I just talk myself off a cliff? No. <laughs> no. I think... Hmm. I think I agree. It's like knowing um, what you're going in for, man. Like, don't just don't go in and just get mad because you know, you know, they're not going to take Harry Potter from that. I read Harry Potter and they said they're making a movie and I'm like, oh, fuck. There's going to be a riot. <laughs> I know J.K. Rowling is even involved, but there's no fucking way you can put this on. How are they going to put this on screen? Mm hmm. They were like, it wasn't exactly like I'm like, How? what the fuck was it? the movie needs to be five hours long, motherfucker. I, I think I'm just at that. the point of my, I'm at the point in my life where I don't want an exact transcription. You know what Thank I mean? You. Thank you. I don't know. I don't feel. I feel like I wouldn't want to see like a eight hour Harry Potter film that is following the book line by line because at that point you're just seeing what's going on in your head. Exactly. You know? Thank you like, for making my point. Hello, holler. You. I mean, like it's a balance of we know it's good to get people in the seats. But we also still want to keep, and I'm speaking on behalf of like like the production of the writers, like we still want to keep it new and fresh. And this is why I feel like we're we're long overdue for like a Princess Bride remake. Like it's so gonna too. it's sure. gonna happen, you know. I would, I and I'm not and I'm not gonna bellyache over it. Yeah, I'm not gonna bellyache over it. I've, I think I've moved past that point of my life. Well, I mean, life. you you nailed it. You actually made the point I was on to, and I'm again I'm very long winded tonight. Is that you know if you the faithful adaptation is in your head, it's in your brainstem. No yeah. film, no matter how long they have or no how many people they consult, it's not going to be specific unless they pick John or Doris, or Wendy, or Paul, and they pick their adaptation of this book, there's no fucking way that an adaptation is ever going to fit into your brainstem because that's your brain. I never saw this character looking that way. I thought he had a limp. He wore a gray suit. He had blue eyes. He, unless the author tells you, and a good writer doesn't fill in all those blanks because a good writer wants you to make this story up in your head. A good writer wants you... To create your own world. That's why I think for me, I would never dictate to you what you think. I can tell you what Bald's ethnicity is. I can tell you what his sexual preference is. But I'm not going to sit here and retcon and tell you, oh, no, on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, he would have thought this. No, you do whatever you want to past a certain point. The contract you make with a, with a reader, with a friend... Is that it's yours now. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's a reader. I'm not talking about a studio or a director or a writer's room. My contract with a reader in my mind is it belongs to you. 
if you want to take this and go do something else with it, I'm not going to sit here. I may not want to see it or hear about it as long as yeah. it's not – if it's egregious even, I especially don't want to hear about it. But, like, I, it's yours. I handed – that's the thing I'm doing existentially mm-hmm. is handing it over to you. So how in the fuck could a work ever be rendered um, to what's in your head? I'd have to be you, Andre, at this time in your life, how you consumed it in your circumstance to be able to hit all of those important points. And there's no Mm -hmm. fucking way I'll be able to please everybody who picked up that book and read it the way you did. Yeah. Yeah. I think along with that is, I think we're at a point with viewership in that it's more of, it's the fun of seeing how this is going to get adapted. Right. And I think that was a lot of the, the attractiveness of the Harry Potter movies at the time. And But now I'm thinking, does does the adaptation have to be good for a movie to be good? And I'm leaning on no. And the only reason why is because when I think of not good adaptation, but great movie, I just think of all the Marvel films. Mm. Because when you look at their comic book counterparts... Bucky is nothing like the Bucky in the comics. Not at all. But it he works perfectly for that movie. Of course he does. And, and it's know, the same thing with Thor. It's the same thing with Tony. Well, maybe I think Tony Stark is probably the closest in terms of like faithful adaptation. But like Natasha Romanoff, even Bruce Banner, like they're not. They're pretty far away from their comic book counterparts, but they're still great. You know what I mean? They're awesome. So you're a huge Marvel fan. You got me pulled into the MCU. Um, but let's go back to the original material. How does I don't know this at all. How does Stan Lee feel about what's happened with his creations? Um, I haven't read a lot of, of how Stan Lee feels about it. Obviously, I think he feels pretty good. Um, considering He's still that alive he, and he, they're, they're paying tribute every episode. Every, Every every single property, yeah. Um, I feel like maybe he... I can imagine some animosity going on between him and Sony with the whole Spider-Man thing. Um, because the only... Again, the only reason the Amazing Spider-Man movies happened was Sony nailing down their rights to that character. Mm. Um, but in terms of how Stanley feels about it, I'm going to guess that he feels pretty good about it because there it's is, doing so well now. I'll send it to you. I don't know if you've seen it. I don't know if you watched Key and Peele, but there is this great... Um, Jordan Peele is a huge nerd. He is a um, comic book nerd and he is a horror nerd. And he <laughs> he does this great like um, sketch where Stan Lee comes in and pitches all of these characters that he <laughs> wants them to put in uh, future franchises. And they're just ridiculous. Uh-huh. And then he sort of threatens them at the end. I'll have to send it to you. But it's one of my favorite uh, Stanley-related things. And, of course, it has to be a Key and Peele sketch. I miss those guys. But I also love what Jordan Peele's doing with his life. So yes. who knows? Um, I had a, I had laid out this to, to, to talk to you in a certain way about it. But I kind of like where organically, as usual, this is gone. Um I think my thing is I don't – at one point if you had caught me at, say, maybe your age and they were going to do – if they had shown me the J.J. J. Abrams Star Trek film, what would my 
20-year-old self had thought. I probably had would have had some really strong opinions about it. I think I have the advantage of time. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that time is superior over anything else. I'm just saying for me, my specific kind of person, I have the time to go. I've seen it done well. I've seen it done shittily. I've seen it done shrilly. I've seen a lot of my favorites get mishandled and mistreated. And, and all I can say now is that I'm just I'm just happy that Star Trek is still getting made. If they had stopped at a certain point and that would have been it, I think that would have been sad. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love the te- uh, the attempts at stuff. I love that we're still attempting things. And I've seen it. We'll see it for our lifetime. Everything be handled all kinds of different ways. I mean, case in point, Roseanne, right? I was a, I, I was a f- fairly middling fan about Roseanne the first time out. Um, Roseanne herself was in a different place. She didn't. She wasn't. She was controversial, yes, but she wasn't where she landed. And I think it's a, she's an interesting figure, and that shows an interesting thing to look at, especially in this current climate. I was kind of thinking the show was going to see where Roseanne was going to go and grow with her pro-Trump stance. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, I still kind of feel like maybe they should have let the show continue on to see where that goes because we're in this kind of crazy. It was going to be like a real life pulse of where we are going to land in this because I don't think anyone knows at all. Yeah. Um, I feel like it kind of got diverted prematurely in a way, uh, even though I don't agree necessarily with Roseanne about what she thinks about stuff. I just think that cutting her off at the pass was not necessarily like a, a way to go. But then again, she doesn't help herself and I can't defend her because she's drunk and on Ambien. I'm sorry. She's on Ambien <laughs> um, in the middle of the night and saying crazy shit and then retconning her entire self. So it's hard to defend someone like Roseanne who they keep getting in their own way. But I was just, I was just as her as a model of a reboot. I was interested yeah. to see if we could, cause I'm, totally wanting to have this conversation of like why do you think the way you do and and is there going to be a buyer's remorse and can you even know so there's stuff like that where i think and then there's stuff like the x-files where they bring it back and then they still fuck over Jillian Anderson and still underpay her. <laughs> Fox still does the same shit that made her leave in the first place and go off to England and build an amazing career. They did it to her again. Bitch went off and just cut her hair off and dyed it blonde and said, I'm not doing Scully anymore. Um, even though her career has been so much better than the Cubney's, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, it's interesting to see what, has happened to all of these things that I once loved or gave attention to, and now they're changing. I, it's like politics right now. Mm-hmm. As much as I can be horrified and put off, and I, f- I get shirty and worked up. I think it's probably one of the best times in the world to be alive, because there's a lot of new voices coming to the well. There's a lot of new takes on things. And I think I'm just more than anything, even though I've soapboxed a lot on this episode, feel like I'm ready to start just paying attention to what comes next, man. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I, I haven't let you talk a lot. I'm so sorry. And I've probably given you a headache even worse. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I don't I don't have any more thoughts. You don't? Like, you didn't come into this going, these are the adaptations of the world. I mean, no, not really. I think I touched on all of them. I can't really think of anything else. I mean, I guess Penny Dreffel is a good example of an adaptation as well. Okay, so where did Penny Dreffel come from? I don't even know this. Do you mean like... Was it a book before? No, no, no. I mean like the, the Penny Dreadful characters, like Frankenstein and Dorian Gray. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. I, It's kind of one of those things. It's like Castle Rock where I really appreciate it. And I also respect that showrunner for going, here's three and mm-hmm. fuck off. And that's my story. That kind of... It's kind of what uh, Ismail is doing with Mr. Robot. He's going to do it in four and he's going to be out. That's what they did with Rome. Bruno Heller, he's in, he's out. He's he's getting a chance to just... I love it when things end on time. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't get the fatigue of 14 seasons of Supernatural. Um, Do not drop... Those people will, like, find us. Do not <laughs> piss those people off. I swear to God now. Some of those people, they will be digging holes in my backyard and burying me. Oh, no, I've rung, I've rung the dinner bell. Um, <laughs> no, I think... Actually, I, I did... I, there was one last thing I wanted to touch upon is that... Um, I know that we're we've sort of passed um, talking about adaptations, but one last one not, last example. There's there's one, no test. <laughs> one last example of sort of I guess adaptations that is interesting to me is all of the Batman ap- adaptations that we've been getting, and I want to talk about Batman versus Superman, and the problem with the adaptation there Mm. because barring my other problems with that movie that I share with tons and tons of people, I feel like the cardinal sin, I guess that that film sort of commits is its adaptation and characters because the, the way before I get to sort of Jesse Eisenberg as um, Lex Luthor, the the Batman adaptation in that movie specifically, you can barely call it an adaptation because when we think of Batman and we think of what makes Batman Batman is his number one rule that he doesn't kill people. And then you get into this film and right off the bat, you have this Batman branding people in prison as a way, as sort of like a post-incarceration punishment and anyone with that brand that is seen in that prison is killed and even though batman's not doing the killing himself he's sort of inadvertently causing it which is still to me in stark contrast to the batman i know that makes you a killer and and exactly and which is not what batman is and then you get to jesse eisenberg's lex Luthor. I feel like if you cast Jesse Eisenberg as the Riddler or something like that, that would have been great. A lot of people have a problem with his Lex Luthor because it's not Lex Luthor. Because in the in the comics, I can't think of anything else. I don't think he's the character has been in like any movies really. Um, but the Lex Luthor, from from what I know, is very smart, intelligent, calculating, stoic. And then you get Jesse Eisenberg, and he's very nervous, impulsive, giddy. And I'm all for a, a different Jewish. interpretation. Di- <laughs> Jewish. Um, 
I'm all for no, a no, different no, portrayal. I love, my, I love my people. I love the Jews. I love the Jews. <laughs> love the Jews. Um, and like different interpretations. I'm all for that. But most of the interpretations I love, and this is where Penny Dreadful comes into the mix, is that no matter what they do with the character, I feel like the core of the character is still there. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel that with Lex Luthor and Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor. Okay. I think I, that's where it sort of wrongs me. Let me ask you a question. So I yeah. don't know much about the DC universe and Marvel universe. Like a long time ago, like I just ran a lot of Sandman at one point. I read a lot of weird offbeat comics. Most of them um, created by my friends. And I read, things like flaming carrot you know i the tick you know my kind of comic book days were limited to just like fringe at the time now popular but fr- no one's done the flaming carrot by the way y'all do the flaming carrot uh there's a lot of gingers cameron uh who could be the flaming carrot and you should totally do it guy with the carrot head hot body anyway He's probably bisexual. Okay, so i'm just saying like <laughs> i don't know this. So so has there been I feel like, okay, I do not want to, because you just pissed off the supernatural people. I don't want to piss off the Batman <laughs> fans, but I just want to kind of say this like in a way that I just want to be like nice about it. I'm not a huge fan of Batman. I just find him boring as shit. I think he's just, I mean, they finally nailed it with a joke of like, I'm rich. I just find him like super boring. He's not, like, he doesn't have any superpowers. He just like his parents died. And I know people who have like way worse situations who were raised in trailer parks who should be superheroes if that's the criterion and shit. Um, like I just need that guy to like be a superhero. Like I was raised and everybody was in defects and they were in prison. Can that guy be a superhero? I mean, I guess that's, Killmonger. Anyway, so why can we just cut to the chase and say that we want the Heath Leather, the Heath Ledger version of the Joker to be the focus of a series of films, and just it, and then Batman is just a dude who shows up as like a fly in the ointment, a sympathetic kind of Joker series that talks about the making of the villain. Has it been done? Have I missed the point? Should I go and get these things on Amazon because I feel like. Batman is boring, but Catwoman and the Joker are the people I want to see inside. Well, that, do I have to have Batman on my plate? Do I have to eat my vegetables with my steak? Do I have to? That's exactly my point in that Batman by himself is, n- I agree, not that interesting a character. I think people love Batman because of the villains. Hmm. I think when people say Batman is my favorite superhero, they mean no. Batman and the Joker and and the Riddler and the Joker. Oh, you're going to disagree? I have a friend in Huntsville, Alabama, who would probably rip both of their faces off right now. <laughs> he totally cosplays in this Batman uh, costume that is breathtaking. It's, be- it's, it's studio quality. He loves. I should probably have him on and go, okay, defend Batman. And he would probably come on here and rip my face off. And that would be fine. And I invite you to do that. I'm not going to say your name out loud, but like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask. I'm going to float this idea to you to like, please talk me into why I should love the Batman. But can carry on. Like, I'm just, I find him fucking boring. I mean, I, that's, that's just me and, and the people I know. I feel like Harley feels, feels pretty similarly because she does love Batman as well. And in, in some, instead of um, stories, you do have the fleshing out of the character of Bruce Wayne. And I know I've seen like tons of, of examples of, especially on Tumblr, um, when people shit on Bruce Wayne, there's like this list of examples that 
all the stuff he does for charity and all of these foundations he's started and all of that stuff and blah, 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 blah. But, but the, he's fictitiously the, done so, yo. I, I, I don't know. Like the, the stuff I've seen, like mm. mainly the Christopher Nolan, Batman animated series, um, barring Gotham, I think Gotham's Batman characters, characterization is spot on. And I think it's the most interesting characterization of Batman. I'm with you on that. Um, I'm still making my way through it and I'm finding this Batman compelling. I'm with you on that. Yeah. But, and in terms of like your, your sort of Joker series, that's, I think that's why we're sort of getting that Joker solo film with Joaquin Phoenix, um, which is again, another great example of, of um, a different adaptation because you look at this this particular Joker, and it's not like the ones we've seen before. Um, and this is kind of this reminds me of like when Suicide Squad was about to come out, and like Jared Leto was revealed as the Joker, and people absolutely hating how he looked, and like this isn't my Joker or not the Joker that has been blah 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 blah. But I think that's a good example in comparison to like the whole Lex Luthor problem I have is that I feel like every adaptation of the Joker has the core of the character in it, despite right. what he looks like, despite his voice, despite the stuff he says, I feel like the core is still there. Right. I'm also kind of maybe feeling a Joker who's not white. I'm also feeling a Joker who's maybe not necessarily gender specific. I'm feeling like maybe we can do a gender in 2018 that's for the G- Z generation and for the millennials. That's possibly a uh, person of color, um, maybe pan. I feel like if anybody was made for like not um, – any of those things is the Joker who's a wild card, maybe? I don't know, Hollywood. Maybe he, she, it, they are not what you think they are, possibly. Just just saying, doesn't maybe need to be Joaquin. Love you, Joaquin. Love you, homie. Love you. But like, I'm just, I saw him and I'm like, what? Is it 1992? Fucking seriously? That's our Joker in 2000 motherfucking 18 is Joaquin. I love you, bro. I love you. But like for reals though, does it have do you to not, be? Do you not like the new look? I'm not feeling it. I don't fucking give a shit. I'd rather have Tommy Wiseau from The Room be the Joker <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I just felt like I felt like I was caught in a goddamn time warp. I'm like, seriously? Well, I think the, the film Wiseau, isn't... Seriously? I don't think it's it's supposed to be in in like 2018. I think it is meant to be in like the 80s or 90s. Sure, that's great. But um, you know, there's also young people in the 80s. There's <laughs> young people of color in the 80s. There's young Asians in the 80s. There's young yeah. folks. Come on now. I was just yeah. like, it just felt like a old ass choice, man. I just... I'm not calling you old ass, Joaquin. I'm not going to age anybody out. I'm not an ageist. I'm just saying I don't. What the fuck? Talking about a remake, a throwback, <laughs> a missed opportunity. I don't. Y'all know this dude is problematic, right? Where is everybody up on? Okay. All right. All right. So that's whatever. I'm just uh, Google. Just Google some shit. I'm just I'm not trying to like pull this guy out. I mean, I love him. He's he said I'm sorry and he's he's come around, but it's like Crispin Glover 
got put up for the Joker. And I would actually sign up more for Crispin Glover than, say, Joaquin Phoenix. Because Crispin mm. is, you know, he's due at this point. I just felt like it was a really 19, early 90s choice to play this guy. And I was just like, this is why I don't, this is why you say Batman and my eye rolls. I'm like, uh, whatever. I don't give a shit. You know, that's why on the Gotham series, the Penguin guy, I'm into it. You know, Bruce Wayne as a kid, I'm into it. Catwoman as a kid, I'm into it. I'm into these characters. Mm -hmm. But seriously? You're serving yeah. up old, like, you know, warmed over sandwich meat saying, here's something fresh. I'm like, bitch, I know an old sandwich meat when I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I think once you get deeper into Gotham, you'll see all the liberties they're taking. And they're really interesting choices. Yeah. I just think there's there's a million actors under the sun, some that we've never even seen their faces and heard their voices and seeing their presence, the unsung, the undiscovered, and that's what I would have done with the 2018, even if I'm going back to the 80s Joker, I would have just been dipping into that pool of the fresh and young, and I would have been finding that person. You know, mm. go find that. Yeah. You know, go find that, bring it to us. I think everybody's ready for it. I'm ready for it. You know, Joaquin's amazing. He can do anything. He's got a million things he can do. He can go do, like, theater and, like, nail it on Broadway. He doesn't need to do this. Uh, I'm, not, I'm an asshole. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet. Did I shoot you out of the sky? I feel like I shot you out of the sky. No, no, you didn't. No. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to watch it, necessarily. Because when I saw that, I was like, hmm. Just same old shit, man. <laughs> I have been to this dive bar in Hollywood a million <laughs> times. You're like, it's fresh and new. It is not fresh and new. It's not anything that I want to drive in my car to Bay City's Arclight and see. That's why mm -hmm. I don't go anymore. Now I'll go for, because you got me turned on to like the MCU. I'll go and see those things fresh and new in the the thing. I did type up a bunch of stuff I want to run through real quick. I do want to say these are movies that I would say they were that I read the books and I saw the adaptations. Can I run through them? Yeah, sure. Real quick. To Kill a Mockingbird, written by Harper mm. Lee, directed by Robert Mullen, uh, Mullion. That was 1962. Godfather, Mario Puzo, Coppola's 1972 adaption. American Psycho, Brett L. Easton Ellis uh, wrote the book. Mary Heron does this kind of funny send-up of it in 2000. Always worth watching. Always a classic. And that has Christian Bale in it. The only time I can watch him. Um, Silence of the Lambs, written by Thomas Harris. Jonathan Demme did a wonderful adaptation of that book in 1991. Picks all the horror and the poignancy. Uh, this is a Jodie Foster and, oh my God. Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins at their finest, 1991. The Big Sleep, Raymond Chandler. You should read that book, everybody. It's very short. Uh, directed by Howard, Harks and, and Howard Hawks in 1946. Faithful adaptation, almost to the letter, if you want to see that on screen. People wanted to do that in 1946. Train Spotting. Irvine Welch did this like really gritty novel about heroin addiction. Danny Boyle did this magic in 1996 and translated that to the screen. Uh, haunting. Baby on the ceiling, anyone? I thought so. Also, Scottish culture, we got the rundown of that. 39 Steps, uh, John Bouchon. Alfred Hitchcock adapted this faithfully in 1935. Read the book. Watch the film. It is worth it. I mentioned No Country for Old Men. Cormac McCarthy, if you want to see how to adapt a Cormac McCarthy book. 2007, the Coen brothers did it. 
Remains of the Day, Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, James Ivory fucking nailed that motherfucker. Changed the time uh, that he did it, the period that he did it. But in 1993, again, Hopkins, breathtaking, amazing. Requiem for a Dream. Speaking of drugs, um, Hubert Selby <laughs> did this amazing uh, fucking book. And Darren Aronofsky did the adaptation in 2000. Gorgeous. Beautiful. Striking. Of its time. Still watchable. Holds up. Uh, Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard, one of my favorite writers. I still love anything Elmore would show up to write. Uh, recently uh, left us in the ensuing years. Quentin Tarantino, for once, listened to the material and did this amazing <laughs> 1997 adaptation. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Stig Larsson. Um, mm. Niels Arden Oplev in nineteen ninety and two thousand nine. This is the Naomi Rapace version. I didn't see the other version um, with Mara Rooney. This is the Naomi Rapace uh, adaptation in two thousand nine. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Wonderful, gritty. Trigger warnings for a lot of these. By the way, uh, that would be thirty nine steps. No country for old men. Uh, train spotting. Sons of the Lambs. Psycho. Godfather. Uh, probably the Killer Mockingbird. And obviously. The, the Girl with Dragon Tattoo. To get to grit, I mentioned it. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If you've never read the book, please uh, read Ken Casey's uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Milos Foreman takes this in 1995 and takes it to a new realm from what I read in the book, although Casey hated it. Um, it was amazing. And Ready Player One. I read half of Ernest King's book, and I still think that Spielberg did a beautiful thing in 2018. Hate me for it, but I loved it. I loved it. Fifty Shades of Grey. Let's talk about how the film was let down by not using the cringeworthy, horrible writing <laughs> of the writer, who can have me killed five times over because she's a multi-trillionaire. But seriously, you didn't use her inner dialogue in the movies? You know why? Because it was terrible. <laughs> but if you wanted me to like get high and watch it and get drunk, you should have left the cringeworthy inner dialogue of the goddess in the movies because you're chicken shit. It sucked, and you should have made the films worthy of that crap. <laughs> and I'm done with my adaptations. And but that's the last you'll hear of Lisa after <laughs> she gets killed by the author. <laughs> so many people will come show up to murder me. Like it'll be like the people who love Batman. It'll be like <laughs> that bitch. It'll be like so many people, but it's okay. And you know, if I go if life. I go missing, look at the supernatural fandom. Investigate, investigate, um. <laughs> investigate. The last words of the woman who murdered her husband recently. Look that up. Google that. Fiction writer murdered her husband. Yeah, kind of basically let it out in her books. Uh, but I love my husband. You, you haven't you haven't spoken a whole lot. And is there any adaptation that we are missing in our or a reboot or remix that you were like Mission Impossible? They did an amazing jo job. No, Twilight I mean, Zone. We, we talked. You talked about I think Game of Thrones because I read the first four and I thought they they did a really good job with you the, did. the show. Like you, yeah. you did. So you I mean that now. was cool. I mean like kids books like Matilda and and witches oh, yeah. and. Um, the BFG. I thought the, the those oh my God. those movies were pretty fun to watch. Witches. That's still one so. of my favorite adaptations. That shit was scary. So yeah, I mean, I think I think we covered it because I, I like I said I don't I don't do a whole lot of reading. I, I I like a lot of the movies I've seen, and then like the re like these remakes that they they're coming out with now. I probably I haven't been seen most of the originals, so I'm watching the remakes because you were raised in the rock. So. 
Yeah. You remember when you and I went to see uh, Where the Wild Things Are? Yeah. And there was like this uh, nanny of this rich lady. That's not a film you should take your kids to, yeah, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember <laughs> much of it because, because the kid was just running up and down the aisle. It was like so. Wes Anderson or some shit. Yeah. And like the nanny... <laughs> Had was had the kid in the aisle running around, and we were like, "What?" Yeah. The, Andre is never going to see a film in L.A. We've just horrified him. Like, <laughs> we're so disrespectful here. But this is what happens in our fucking theaters when you go to a fucking movie. So this bitch, like this rich bitch, is just sitting there, like you know, vaping on her vape pen, watching where the wild things are, while her <sighs> Hispanic nanny, bless her heart, is trying to keep like her child that she, her devil fucking child, Cody, probably Cody or Dakota, running around crazy. <laughs> in the goddamn aisle while we're trying to sit there because we arrive late the thing is yeah. packed for some reason we were just early together right yeah and then we did all we know we we, we went and i think we saw at the promenade which first which of all is the shitty you place just to never, see a film, you never like go down there this film and some bitch like misread like wes anderson like i love dogs it's not for your kid dude it's not a child's movie i know there's animated claymation dogs in it but well, maybe that one is. But this one wasn't. It was like scary and. Big. Isle of Dogs was dark. It was dark. All of Wes Anderson. It's fucking Wes Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> he makes like vampire parts into like. And Starbucks parts into like. I don't know where I'm going with that. I was trying to be clever. I lost the point. But I'm just saying. So we're w- trying to watch this fucking movie. You and I were just getting to know each other. And we didn't realize that we both had this kind of trait of like screaming at strangers. Like. Like in their faces about their truth. Uh, we just say our truth to them. Like you're a fucking garbage person. What the fuck? And I knew not to say this to the nanny because it's, she's just earning a paycheck, but I was leaning across the aisle into the rich bitch's face going, what the actual fuck bitch without saying the F word. I just said, what is up with you bringing your child to this movie? And she couldn't be bothered. And I think we got it and walked out. I don't know where I was going well. with that. But <laughs> That adaptation didn't work out for me. Yeah, so I'm never seeing a movie in L.A. Um, and yeah. Yeah. No. no, you just have to go at the right time and the theaters well, that when aren't... when you come and visit, we'll you take know. you to beach cities. We'll go at like 11 o'clock in the morning or yeah. 10 o'clock in the morning. We'll have breakfast. It'll be awesome. It'll be uh, the three of us and a bunch of old people who respect what we're doing. Yeah. It'll be <laughs> never fine. go to the promenade, never go to the Grove or some other stupid we, movie theater like that. Know. We didn't know. Yeah. I do think the 21 jump street update was one of my favorite remakes. Okay. You guys uh, take care of yourselves out there, please. I know it's a crazy time. Everybody's upset about what's going on with Kavanaugh. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. We're all going to be Okay. Um, everybody's just railing and ranting and raving. It's going to be fine. The fix is already in. You know how it goes. We still got each other. Take heart. Hold one another. Don't hate those people who are doing the things you don't like too much. Hate is a poison that you should not take yourself. And what is that? Hate is like a poison that you, what is that whole Irish saying? You take and you wait while you wait, wait wait for your enemy to die. Yeah, something like that. We just totally botched that. But just don't hate people. It's just, <laughs> it it poisons your system, makes makes you incontinent, and and your butthole falls out. Just don't do that. <laughs> um, calm down. It's going to be okay. We're going to live to tell the story tomorrow, and it's fine. It's fine. We're all going to come together. It's going to be. It's going to change. We're going to live through it. Uh, Halloween is coming. Our anniversary is coming. We will have been married like what five years? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we'll do a podcast around that time. Five years together for nine? I'm terrible with numbers. That's why I got married on Halloween, so I could remember my anniversary. <laughs> At least I remember that part. Uh, I think we talked about sitting in the garage like rednecks with the, the thing and candy out candy. All right. Andre, do you have any like uh, recommendations? Anything that we should be checking into? Any artists that you're into that we should be listening to? Um, other than American Horror Story Apocalypse? <gasps> oh my god, it's so good! Holy fuck! Okay, <laughs> it's so we're amazing. gonna we're gonna do an episode when when the season is over. But I want to. But yeah, this this season is it's a strong contender for the best season i have to say i'm feeling it i'm mm-hmm. feeling it if they keep and it up it may make our 2018 end of year list that you'll be a part of this year mm. oh ooh, mm. that's fun um yeah i don't really know what to say other than i'm blown away um and i can't wait to see the rest of the season oh and i feel like it's gonna surpass all of my expectations can we please can the hawthorne school of of warlocks please have its own spinoff yeah they're kind of cool, i just want they? four seasons of that give me want... four seasons of billy porter as the the boy coven dumbledore shabbly billy porter is the dumbledore we've we we deserve bd wong um, is like penny pincher whatever his name is i love you oh my god penny packer his name is professor penny packer hello girl Give me four seasons of Cheyenne Jackson with eyeliner. Hello, girl. And then the Filipino guy that we don't have his name in front of us, but we loved you in like the assassination of Johnny Versace. You played Andrew Cannon's dad. Mm -hmm. Love you, love you, heart you. Oh my God. Love you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. All I'm going to say is... Cordelia is the fucking supreme. And you know what? I'm going to like take some hate back that I had for Emma Thompson. I'm in Tom. Oh, Emma. What's her name? Emma Roberts. Emma Roberts. Emma. Ro- not that lady. Emma. Emma Roberts. I. You know what, girl? I love you this season. I feel you. Your whole personal hell and Ross. I know that the writers <laughs> did that for you, but shit, girl. I'm feeling sympathy for you so hard and you actually made me like you so she's a little more tolerable this season yeah i like her and then queenie is back and then march and then hold on <gasps> we're gonna talk about what happened oh about. it was so great okay yeah, yeah. okay 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 all right yeah. uh ian do you have any recommendations you've been listening to some of your uh, music that you have not checked out until recently in the ridge line yeah i just digitized all my um my hip-hop and what was the thing that you listened to recently that you were like go check it out even though it's like it's been out for a while Oh, I listened to um, MF Doom's Danger Mouse. Ooh. So that was kind of fun. I remember that whole promotion around that. That was like a crossover with like Cartoon Network or some shit they were doing. Yeah, Adult Swim or something. I might have even been around at the time. It's a, a lot of references to um, Space Ghost and yep. those guys. My former stomping ground, Space Ghost. What up, everybody? Okay, cool. Um, Guys, all I got to say, we talked about a bunch of stuff. If you guys got opinions, where do they find us, Andre? Where are they coming to us? Politely, with respect. <laughs> come on. It's a hateful world. Be nice. Where can they come and find us? Uh, if you guys want to get into touch with us, you can find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Ashland Podcast. If you want to email us for any reason, um, you can email us at ashlandpodcast.gmail.com. And to listen to us, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play Music, and our website. Also, please go to Andre Magalhaes' uh, YouTube. It's 
Andre, A-N-D-R-E, Michael Hayes, MAGA, M-A-G-A, doesn't really feel that way, L-H-A-E-S. Go find him on, yes. you, on YouTube. Go find him. His, his shit's amazing. He does this wonderful uh, video of... Like, he does, the marble stuff is awesome. His music is awesome. You did this thing recently. Plug, plug what just happened when I just watched that I love so much. Um, well, I, I am shifting gears a little bit because I felt bad that I haven't had time to put together any sort of music video or something. So I posted just a reaction of um, Pentatonix's uh, latest release, their cover of Making Christmas from The Nightmare Before Christmas, and I basically just reacted to it, broke it down, sort of analyzed it from a uh, musician-composer perspective, and hopefully you guys learned something, because that was the whole point of that. Um, I like how you and, sang along. It was great, because you got all the keys. You have like a nice, you have a perfect pitch, don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I have relative I so. pitch. No. Relative pitch. Perfect pitch is like when someone can play a note and you can immediately say which note it is. I'm or not like quite Roger there Roger Taylor yet. with his drums and queen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do plan on doing more of those. I actually have filmed already three. They're just they just need to be edited. Um, but yeah, if you guys want to, if you guys are into that stuff, be on the lookout for more in the future. Definitely check out Andre. All right, guys. Good night. And now, always, I love you. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>